I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 11. This summer, I did a, a summer sermon series called Tough Stuff in the Bible in our church, and, and I asked people to submit to me passages that they thought were, were tough, either hard to understand or hard to accept. And this was one of them that was submitted to me, one that I, I preached on this summer, and um, as we go through the passage, we're going to read the whole chapter, it's a little lengthy, but, but it's really important. Um, Joshua 11, I want you to be thinking about why this might be tough stuff in the Bible. So Joshua chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Maiden, to the kings of Shimron and Aksha, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Arabah south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, in the Naphoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore, all these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom. And attacked them, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mizrafoth, Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left. <coughs> Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hatzor and put its king to the sword. Hatzor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed. And he burned up Hatzor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hatzor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises to, towards Seir, to Baal, God in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, the Beer, and 
and Anam, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. <coughs> Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Is this our God? Is this our God, really? This, this can't be. This can't be our God, the God that we worship. Can it? God is love. Is this our God? There's passages like, like this in Joshua that have turned many people away from the faith. They read this and they say, really? If, if that's the God that you worship, I want no part of that. I want no part of that God. I certainly am not going to worship Him. That God is a monster. Maybe that's a bit where your heart is too after reading a passage like this. God can just come in and just wipe everybody out? Well, maybe say, well, okay, so that's the Old Testament, different God from the New Testament. Same God. Well, maybe, maybe this is because um, all this happened because Joshua was just doing his own thing. Joshua did all this. Not God, we want to kind of protect God's honor in a way, and then we read over and over and over in this passage, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. The author makes it crystal clear this was not Joshua's own doing. This was exactly what the Lord wanted, and it's exactly what the Lord commanded. So we're right back to this, this God who seems to be violent, a tyrannical monster who just wipes people out for no reason just because he can. What's going on? You know, it'd be like if, if Canada all of a sudden just decided that they wanted Michigan. And they just came in here and said, we're, we're taking Michigan. We'd say... Uh, no, especially not Canada. <laughs> I'm kidding. If there's Canadians in here, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But we, no, you can't just come into a, another territory and just, just take it. But we read this passage, and it seems like God's doing the, exactly that. Israel comes to this land, and God says, hey, I just want you to just go ahead and destroy all these people who are living there because I want you to have it. So just wipe them out. Is this our God? 
Let's take a step back. Whose land is it? Who owns the land? Genesis 1, verse 1. Memorize that in school, Sunday school, some of you. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made it all. He's the maker of of heaven and earth. Psalm 24, verse 1 kind of echoes that same idea. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who owns the land? God does. Yahweh does. The Lord does. He owns it all. He made it. It's his. And he created humans, Adam and Eve and their descendants, to to take care of the land, to, to use it for God's glory. But when sin came into the world, it, it completely changed everything. It affected the land itself, and, and it separated people from God. And, and the humans that, that God had created to care for the land no longer were taking care of the land for God's glory. They wanted it just for themselves. They wanted the the land, the earth, to be all about them, not for the Lord. And there was complete and utter rebellion against God, the creator of all that there is, the one who owns all that there is, and the one who owns all of the land. And so God chose one man, Abraham. And he said to that, that one man, out of all of the, the people of, of the earth who were in rebellion against God, he chose this one man and he said, I'm going to bless all of the earth through you, Abraham. I'm going to bless all of the land, all of the earth. And he took Abraham to the land of Canaan. And he said, this land will be yours. God had the right to do that. Now, you you hear me saying the word land a lot, right? It's really important for us to understand what that means in the Old Testament. It didn't just mean a piece of property. The land was about where God is. God was in the land in the Garden of Eden. But because of sin, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the land And so when God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm I'm going to give you a land, it means I'm, I'm going to bring you to a place where I will be with you. I will dwell with you again. And Abraham, I'm going to bring you into this land that I'm promising to you. It will be yours. And it's in that land and through that land that you will become a blessing to all of the land. But Abraham and his descendants didn't end up staying in that land of Canaan. You might know the stories that through the events that happened with Joseph, the, the descendants of Abraham got taken away to, to Egypt. And they were out of the land. 
They were no longer in the land that God promised, but God had promised that land. That was the land that God was going to, to give them in a special way. That was where God would dwell with His people. That's what He had promised them. And, and it was in that land that He would bless all of the earth through them. But now the, the, the people that God chose were in Egypt. So then what did God do? He, through Moses, He leads them out of Egypt. And where is He bringing them? To some random place? No, he's bringing them back to, what do we call it? The promised land, right? It's not just a nice phrase. It's called the promised land because it's the land that God had promised to give to his people. And so God is, is bringing the Israelites back to that promised land. And he's saying, that's the land where I'm going to live with you and I'm going to be with you. That's the land that I chose. And so he came up to these people and, that were living there. And who, who was living in that land of Canaan at the time? Some really great, wonderful, godly people that were doing their best to please God. Some really sweet, innocent people who loved the creator of the universe? No. People who did not worship Yahweh. People who did not worship the one true God. People who were living in active rebellion against the God of the universe. People who were seeking out any and every God that they could find apart from the God who actually is. And those people were living in a land that God had chosen and promised to give to His people. But, but you might say, well, how do, we, how do we know that? I mean, how do we know? It doesn't, I mean, does it really say that they were all that bad? Do we know that they were really wicked people in rebellion against God? They, it may have been some very nice people there, right? I'd say, well, sure. There may have been some very nice people. But how can I say that they were people who were wicked people living in rebellion against God. We know that they were wicked people living in rebellion against God because the Bible makes it very clear that that is true for all of us. All of us who are not called, chosen, and changed by God. See, Joshua and, and the Israelites... Who, who did all of this stuff, they were no better than, than the, the people living in Canaan, in that land. They were no better than the people that they had to destroy. They were no different, except, except for the fact that God had simply chosen them 
God had chosen to love them. God had chosen to save them. God had chosen to bless the world through them. And so he chose to to change them so that they would worship him. So this, this land was theirs. Not because they were so great, but because God said it was theirs. And so there's people living in the land that belongs to God, that God had decided, had chosen to give to his people, and there's people living there who are in active rebellion against God, and they need to go. Notice that the beginning of Joshua 11 makes it clear that in in this situation here, Joshua didn't simply just come in and start wiping out people in towns and kings. Did you notice that? In the beginning of Joshua 11, there's all those names that I have no idea how I'm supposed to pronounce them. That's a little confession from a pastor, you know. They, they, they tell you in seminary, when you get to a passage like this, just read it loud and proud like you know exactly what you're talking about, and everyone's going to believe you because they don't know any better. So I don't know how to pronounce the names and just kind of, so what, what are all those names for, though? What, what was going on there in the beginning of the chapter? It was all these kings who are uniting together, and they're uniting together against God's people. We're going to destroy these Israelites. The kings of Canaan rose up against Israel. They didn't didn't know God, and they certainly didn't care who he had chosen as his people. So keep, keep this in mind. Everything that God did here in Joshua 11 and in other chapters where we see the similar kind of thing in the book of Joshua, everything that God did here and everything that God continues to do, it's all for the good and the protection of his people. It says the the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. This is is not a, a, a horrible story about some monster God. This is a beautiful story about God protecting his people from their enemies. That's what God does because he loves his people. But seriously, we we might ask. I mean, couldn't, couldn't God simply have, you know, you know, just chased the people from the land? Couldn't you just said, hey, I, I want my people, this is the land I chose to give to my people. I want you people out of here. Couldn't you just shoot them out of there without killing them all? And I'll be honest, I wrestle with that. It, it, it doesn't always sit well all the time. But there are a few things that, that we need to keep in mind when we think about why God did what he did. 
first of all, let's remember, God chooses his people. All people everywhere, all people everywhere deserve nothing but God's judgment and his punishment. That's what we all deserve. There is not one person who has ever lived except for Jesus who has not deserved to be destroyed in the most brutal way, to be destroyed both in body and in soul now and for eternity. That's what we deserve because of our sin. Every single person But God, in His grace, has chosen to, to rescue a people. He's chosen to, to rescue some from, from that punishment that, that they deserve. Not because they're better than others. Not because they make better choices than others. Simply because He's loving and gracious and good. He knows exactly who he loves, and he knows exactly who he's going to save. The rest are still deserve God's judgment and punishment and justice. So when, when God commands Joshua to wipe out these other nations, he's simply commanding Joshua to carry out the kind of punishment that these people deserve. The kind of punishment that we all deserve. There's no injustice here. There's no injustice. We, we might also wrestle with the idea that this seems like it's some kind of genocide, Right? Like, because you're not a Jew, because you're not Israelite, going to wipe you out. Is it genocide? Well, no, because we, if you remember the story of Rahab, you may have heard that story just a little bit earlier in Joshua, where Rahab, who is not an Israelite, she gets saved. Why? Because God simply chose to give her faith in the one true God, and to save her. It's not about Jew versus non-Jew. This is about those God has chosen as his people, and he's chosen to save some, and he simply left others in their sin and in their guilt. Look at verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. Ouch. Whew. Let's recognize that when the Lord hardens their hearts, and, and the same language is used and talking about what God did with Pharaoh. It's not that God takes someone who's really good and makes them bad. It's simply that God leaves them to who they are. 
He withdraws his grace and he says, you just be who you are. There's still a question, though, of why. Why why doesn't God just save them all? Why doesn't God just choose them all? Why doesn't he just go into the, to these Canaanites and just convert them all in, with love? I don't know. I have no idea. God is God. He knows why He does what He does, and it's good. Remember this. No one receives injustice. No one. Some receive mercy, and the rest receive justice. But there's another more important thing for us to see here. See, all of this is, is a picture, not just of the way that God worked then, but it's a picture of the way God works and the way God will work. This is a beautiful picture of God rescuing, saving, and protecting, and providing for His people. And it's saying God will give His people what they need. He will provide for them. He will protect them. Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. Because that rod and the staff are there. You're gonna, he's going to fight off all of our enemies. And, and this is, is just simply pointing to a much greater reality, a greater rescue, a greater protection. The name Joshua is, in, in Hebrew, the, the name is really Yeshua. That's, that's the, the name Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. Do you know what that name means? It means Savior. And do you know who else had that name? Yeshua? Jesus. The name Jesus is simply the the English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Yeshua. And you will call his name Yeshua. Joshua. For he will save His people from their sins. God will provide rescue for His people. God has provided rescue for His people, and God will bring His people into the promised land, into the place where where we will be with Him in His presence. He will rescue His people through a rescuer. He has rescued His people through a rescuer, through a Savior, through Jesus. And look at the, the end of Joshua 11. Here's the end result, verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel. God gave Israel the inheritance that he had promised them. God promises an inheritance, and he gives an inheritance to his people. 
And he did that through Jesus, who at the cross and in his resurrection defeated all of his enemies and and all of those who stood in opposition to him and to God and to his people. And he made a way for us to come and to live in the land, to live with God in his presence. Praise God. It says then at the very last thing, the, the land had rest from war. Through Christ, we have rest from war. We have peace. And, and one day, one day God will finish all that he has started here. Yeshua will come again, mighty and in strength. And he will once and for all completely destroy all of those who are his enemies. Anyone who has stood in opposition to God, anyone who has stood in opposition to Jesus Christ, anyone who has stood in opposition to God's people, the church, Christ is going to return. He's going to completely destroy all of those enemies. And we will receive that inheritance and we will have that rest in His presence forever and ever and ever. You see, God will take care of it. This is is exactly why we don't have to do what Joshua did. We, We don't have to go and destroy anybody. Because God hasn't told us who the elect are. He simply told us to go out as if they're all elect and tell them about Christ. God's going to take care of it. And all the injustice that we receive, God says, it's, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to worry about it. God will protect His people. Even if it means we die. Even if it means we are killed for our faith. God will protect His people and He will bring justice. We don't need to. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. God will deal with his enemies. Jesus will win. Jesus has won. He is winning, and he will win. And all of his people will win with him. And we will receive an inheritance, not one that we deserve. It's all grace. We will receive an inheritance far greater than any trouble we might experience on this earth. We are receiving an inheritance and glorious, glorious rest. All because the greater Joshua, he fought the battle and he won for our sake. And for his glory, this is our God. Praise him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the greater Joshua who came, who at the cross defeated his enemies and ours. We stand in awe of the way that you protect your people through Christ. And so, Lord, we give ourselves over to you. And even if it means that we give 
our very lives here, we know that we receive an inheritance and final rest because we belong to you. Thank you for loving your people so completely. And so, Lord, help us to simply trust in you and to allow you to lead us and to guide us every step of the way. Thank you for your love for your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you please stand? I'll give you God's parting blessing, and then we'll close with number 543 in the gray. Number 543, guide me, O my great Redeemer, verses 1 and 2. But now I send you out with this blessing of our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you His peace now and forevermore. Amen.